Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. I'm so excited to have today's guest on, and you will be too when you get to hear more about who she is and what she does and what problems does she solve, as well as who's her ideal client. Many of you may be thinking and wondering at the end of this session, how fast can I get in touch with her? And I hope that's the case. Now, I would be remiss if I do not mention the fact that today, which is June 24th, the judgment came out from the Supreme Court and overruled Roe v. Wade. She and I will spend a little bit of time talking about that as well, because we both as women have our own unique feelings about this ruling, and we're going to spend some time talking about that too. So with that, I am very honored and very pleased to introduce you to Kelly Wagner. And of course, I'm your host, Dr. Tane. In the session, for those of you who may not know me, I'm your host. So Kelly, welcome to Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. And please, please, please feel free to introduce yourself to the audience. Well, thank you first and foremost for having me. I'm um, very excited to be here and honored to be a guest on your show. Um, my name is Kelly Wagner, as you said. I am the CEO and founder of a diversity, equity, and inclusion company called Collective. Um, we have been around since 2017. I started Collective after spending about a decade working in the tech space, primarily at startups, um, and realizing that there was such a gap in the consulting and training space for services geared towards these smaller kind of scrappy startups with limited resources who wanted to build diversity, equity, and inclusion into their practices um, from the very beginning. And um, so we've been really lucky to support, um, you know, over a hundred or so uh, startups and scale-ups and now larger corporations over the past nearly five years. And, um, yeah, I've just been super humbled to see how this this industry has evolved. Yeah, same here. So we're in the same space and, and it's been, what a journey, right? It's been a <laughs> unique and interesting journey here. And more importantly, you were recognized by Forbes last year as the Forbes Next 1000. So tell me, what does that honor mean to you? And um, how have you actually been able to use that to further your platform and the work that you're doing? Oh, well, first of all, it's always it's always an honor to uh, be recognized for the work that you're doing, especially when you're sort of heads down and just trying to focus on making an impact um, to be able to look up and say, oh, people are seeing that impact is always, um, you know, just again, I, I feel a lot of gratitude for that. And actually, what's interesting is it's a very, it was a very full circle moment for me because um, Forbes was the very first publication to feature me after I started my company collective. And so uh, a, just a huge champion from the beginning. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a nice little a moment. I think uh, I was featured in 2017, 2018, I think. And now to to be recognized um, in 2022 is is really exciting. Definitely. And tell us a little bit more about the work that you do. It's very interesting that you have these uh, the the niche that you have in terms of your focus on the smaller startup, as you said, scrappy companies that are coming along. The fact that they're even uh, focused on diversity, I think, is important in the very beginning, so that way they're not doing it, you know, years and years and years later. Um, but what has that experience been like for you and how do people actually find out about you? 
Yeah. Um, I think what's been really cool is that, you know, most of my life I've been at companies, most of my career, I've been at companies under, you know, a few hundred employees. Um, And so much of it was spent in tech, which is historically very white, very male um, heavy. And so often these companies are very young. They're putting a lot of practices into place. And I just realized that um, when I was talking to friends that were working at more of the fortune 500 companies, and then also when I did go back to school, um, I did a program at NYU around strategic diversity, equity, and inclusion. I realized that the fortune 500 companies, um, both in the case studies we saw through my program and through the insights that I'd gleaned from friends in those companies, they just had a lot more resources, a lot more infrastructure dedicated to, um, DEI, um, work, um, employee resource groups and things like that. And you didn't really see that in startups and startups were even less, I think, diverse than some of these bigger companies. And so very much came from my own need to feel uh, supported, but also, um, I was able to take a lot of my own learnings um, and my own sort of disciplines in working in customer experience and user experience on the tech side to be able to inform a different way of doing the DEI work. So, you know, a lot of what I had heard and seen was that oftentimes the DEI work was done very uh, top down. Um, And so when these strategies were being set, they're being set often by groups of people at the top that aren't necessarily reflective of the folks that are most impacted Mm -hmm. by the lack of DEI. And coming from the tech space, coming from user experience, you know, so much of that is grounded in you have to inform your products um, or users, the user has to inform the product. So not only do you need to understand the end user's problem that you're trying to solve, but you need to understand what types of solutions are going to be desirable and impactful for them. And so that really has influenced the ways in which we um prioritize sort of listening to employees, um, particularly those who are most um, marginalized or have been historically underrepresented to not only understand, you know, what are the challenges and roadblocks for them feeling empowered and respected in the workplace, but also what are the solutions that are going to actually move the needle rather than just making sort of guesses, throwing spaghetti at the wall, if you will, um, about, you know, how to solve their needs, what interventions are necessary. And we've seen some really great positive um, movement and impact and and feedback about that process because it really allows, um, it takes a very community oriented approach to solving these problems. And I think that's, that hasn't always been the case in this space. Sure. And what are some of the challenges that you see or have seen, I would say, over the last two years, right? So when we think about summer of 2020, um, when we had the racial uprising and protesting following the murder of George Floyd, has the focus of your clients shifted or has it pretty much stayed what you were doing with them prior to that? 
Yeah. You know, I was just talking about this yesterday um, with a client on site. I was speaking to sort of the evolution of this work mm-hmm. um, and the different phases that this work has gone through just in the time that I've um, owned collective. And when I first started out, you know, things like unconscious bias and allyship were really front and center. I would say there was a very large focus, particularly with our tech clients on um, including more women in the workplace and empowering women and bringing them along. And, and, and I think there was, there was the kind of that expansion of identity, but I would say not until 2020 were people really willing to say, okay, um, it's not enough to be inclusive. It's not enough to be equitable. We also need to pull in this lens of anti-racism and we need to really start to have honest conversations about race. Um, and I think that that was, um, you know, I would say a lot of myself and a lot of other practitioners that I spoke to in the summer and fall of 2020 would have used the term uh, cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and I think that some companies have followed through on that. But I would say, you know, since the summer of 2020 to now, what I've really seen is an awakening to just how complex this work is. I think that I heard a lot of in the summer of 2020, we no longer want to just check the boxes Mm -hmm. Um, for a lot of companies that meant, you know, doing an unconscious bias training or having employee resource groups. Um, But what it ended up looking like in practice was it's not that people didn't want to check the box. They wanted a longer list of boxes to check. Right. (laughs) Um, I think their, their, their boxes expanded, right? Like there was a request to, Oh, we have to audit our systems and our processes. And we have to look at things at a systemic level. Um, Oh, we need to include race in our lens of how we think about Mm -hmm. diversity, but uh, there was still a very, um, if we do this, then this will happen. And I, I think for a lot of companies, it's a tough pill to swallow when it's not as easy as if we have ERGs, if we have conversations about race, if we look at our systems, then things will be better. Um, you know, it, it is more complex than that. And the results are uh, take longer to come to fruition. And there's a lot more steps backwards and steps to the side and, and stalling. And, and so I think you've seen some companies grapple with that and continue to keep pushing forward. And you've seen other companies when faced with um, the realization that these things aren't going to change things overnight, say, oh, is this actually, are we going to continue to invest in this? This, this feels too hard. Right. Um, and to sort of fall back on some of those more, again, check the box initiatives. Um, so, you know, I think, I think people are starting to realize that this work is complex and it is hard and it takes a very strong why and a strong commitment to really, um, reap the benefits of it. Yeah, you know, I tell my clients all the time the adage that it's truly a marathon, not a sprint. 
And if you think that at one point you're going to get to say, hey, we've done it. We've completed diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Yay us. I said, you're going to be very disappointed with yourself Yeah, um, because it's ever evolving, ever changing. And, you know, different things now that are happening in society or impacting the workplace in ways that it never had before. Um, with in particular, thinking about summer of 2020, it just so happened that we were all home at the same time around the world. I mean, how yep. often would that happen again? Probably never, probably never. So it was, it was a, the perfect tsunami in order for everyone to be able to sit there and, and, and really have this new level of awareness and awakening about what they want the experiences, in particular, the Black, Indigenous, people of color employees to have in the workplace. And it continues to change and evolve based on different things that are happening still to this day, you know, two years, two and a half years later, even. So um, I definitely am in agreement with you with that, that things have changed, but um, they've realized that they need to expand the lens because much like you, I've been in this space now since 2007. And a lot of the focus of the work I've done up until 2020 was around women in leadership and, you know, um, the next generation and millennials, you know, that type of thing. But yeah, the the boxes have been expanded. I like the way you said that. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me at what point would a startup reach out to you to look to bring you in to help them focus on embedding DEIB into the DNA of their organization? At what point like how many years, how many employees, or does that even matter? It's a great question. And I think it's one that we're always trying to figure out and grapple with, um, particularly as we think about what does it mean to be in the DEI space and be sustainable as a business while also continuing to center the impact that we have always been really committed to, which is creating accessibility to this work. Um, for companies who want to do it, because mm-hmm. DEI consulting, let's be honest, any kind of consulting uh, support is not cheap, <laughs> typically, right. because it is very driven by humans and their vast expertise. Um, and yet, um, we don't want companies to wait until there are 500 people, right, and have a six-figure budget to be able to do this work. And so, One of the things that we think about a lot at Collective is how can we take our learnings um, and create more accessible resources for those smaller companies? Because ultimately, who we we would say, you know, it's it's never too early. As as a founder, you should be thinking from the start when you are thinking about your first founding team. You know, what are the perspectives that are going to be super helpful um, in helping us to solve the problem that we're solving as a business, what perspectives might be missing from my own network. Um, And so, you know, thinking about bringing in that diversity from the beginning, because it's going to make, it's going to make your efforts to grow in a way that has diversity um, embedded in it much easier. Um, But the reality is, is that the more difference that you have on the team, uh, the more intentional you need to be um, Mm -hmm. about, you know, different working styles and including perspectives that maybe don't, don't, uh, aren't what you would choose. Right. Um, And, and so uh, that also takes a certain level of skillfulness. So making sure that you're not only considering, um, 
you know, thinking about your early hiring practices in a way that maximizes diversity because it's much easier to build upon that than it is to diversify a very homogenous early uh, team, but also having the capability building from very early on to work well across difference um, and to build those skill sets into the ways in which, you know, as you grow, you, you manage people and you support your, your basically your greatest assets, your people. So I don't think that there's um, a threshold where I would say, Oh, when you're at 20 people, make sure you do this. <laughs> I think you can be thinking about certain principles from the get, um, it makes everything easier, but I would definitely say, you know, when you start thinking about building those processes to support your team, whether it's your hiring processes or your, um, performance review process, how you recognize and invest in people, um, you know, building that in an equitable way from the start will save you a lot of time, um, and energy down the, road to have to course correct mm-hmm. yeah and you know the thing with startups what I've realized because I've worked with a couple as well um, they oftentimes go to their immediate network right whether it's friends yeah. or family or people they've gone to school with or previously worked with and then they bring them into the organization and it does automatically start to become homogenous right because it's people who look like them that they're familiar with and then they bring in new people and it's like, oh, are they a fit, right? So right. I, I think it's great that, um, like you said, there's not really a, a point in time. They should just be thinking about it, period. Um, especially now when we think about the next generation of workforce, you know, Gen Z in particular, but they're the most ethnically diverse group to enter the workforce as well. And they're the ones that are now asking employers, what are your plans around diversity? What does diversity look like there? Um, do you have a diversity and inclusion program, right? Or, or initiative? Is it part of your DNA, part of your, your goals? So I have clients that are telling me all the time that they're getting, they're getting those types of questions from, um, you know, gen, younger Gen Y and, and Gen Z um, candidates, which is good. Yeah. I mean, it's, I love that we were saying um, the other day, you know, more and more in the interview process for jobs, it's more of a two-way interview, right? Mm-hmm. That, that these younger candidates are really also looking at the organization um, through their interactions with hiring managers and, and the folks that are interviewing them to say, hey, is this culture going to be one that aligns with my values? That's yep. going to support me, that's going to support other people that may be be more historically marginalized than me, because that again is something that's important to me as as the a potential employee. Um, and so, there, if if the folks that are out there doing the hiring, you know, how are they representing the company, um, and you know, what are they saying? What what is their behavior and how they're showing up in interactions? Uh, saying about what the culture is like there. Yeah. And so I'm a Gen Xer and I can tell you early in my career, my only focus was how much are they going to pay me? So, <laughs> I'm like, I want to make more money than I made at the last job. Check. Okay. Sign me up. <laughs> so I commend this next generation that are thinking more 
about their values? You know, is it aligned with their personal mission, their personal passion? Um, and if not, I've seen them leave for, you know, companies that are paying less because they do have that alignment now. So I think they're going to be the ones that continue to evolve and change the workplace. And, and I'm a little jealous of this next, you know, generation and a half or two, two generations. Um, okay, so Kelly, before I let you go, as I said in the beginning, I want us to touch on the ruling that came out again um, from the Supreme Court regarding Roe v. Wade. Um, so we're both, you know, females and I identify as, you know, straight female, but I'm wondering what do you think, if at all, because I know it's so new to us right now, what do you think the impact will be on women in the workplace? I mean, I think there are there are sort of the tactical, tangible um, impacts in terms of uh, where what jobs women will take and and where they'll mm-hmm. be comfortable living. Um, and and you know, some of that has been alleviated by more um, hybrid, remote workforce opportunities. But I think we can't discount the fact that you know, if a woman is contemplating a job that would put her in a state where her reproductive rights are limited um, or restricted in, in, in a major way, that that is going to be something now that a lot of women are going to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that extends to sort of how this impacts employee benefits uh, as well. Um, but I think, you know, even more day to day for the women that are sort of sitting in companies, um, you know, and this happens anytime sort of uh, elections come up as well, is there becomes this unspoken question of where do my colleagues stand on this? Uh What are they thinking? Would they support my right to Uh choose? not um and and i think that there that tension that tension is felt whether it's spoken or not it is felt especially in some of the bigger organizations um you know that are that exist across the country or that are in more um conservative states you know where people are working with people across all sort of political ideologies and religious backgrounds I think sometimes folks feel a little bit more able to exist in silos in some of the bigger cities to say, oh, I I assume that everyone sort of thinks like me, but that's not always the case. And, and I think that that, you know, we're going to see that those conversations bubble to the surface in the workplace. Um, And, you know, it's going to, impact people's relationships and trust with one another. Yeah, I totally agree. I didn't even think about that aspect of it, honestly, Kelly. And, you know, when I think about um, women and I think about the strides that we have made, like you and I both said, we spent a lot of our time in diversity work, you know, a few years ago, focused on getting women into leadership roles and, you know, make sure there's a pipeline and succession plans for, for women to get past that, that broken rung, right? And to think about all of the strides that have been made, I just feel like, you know, much like this being a 50 year old, um, you know, civil rights, uh, I feel like we're going back 50 years and women spend more of their income in the economy than men, um, whether it's around uh, taking care of the household, taking care of the children, um, you know, food, you know, all of those things, more of our income is spent on that than men. 
And so the, this has such a wide range and wide reaching impact um, as it relates to the next generation of women, those that are childbearing age, um, that may decide or may not decide that they want to have kids in order to not have to step out of the workplace, which then creates a wider equity gap in terms of pay when they do that. Um, it, it's just, it's so far reaching that it's, it's just yeah. scary. I mean, when I, you know, you and I are both in California, when we woke up, it was already three hours old, right? But um, right. I, I looked at it and I thought, oh my gosh, I knew this was coming, but it's really here. Yeah. And then I think about all of the other laws that are that are you know on the on the chopping block, right? So same sex marriage, and then when we get to education, when we get to interracial, they're already talking about contraception, like all of these things that people think this one isolated case is just yeah. about Roe v. Wade. It goes so much deeper and further than that. And I think like that's one of the things that I think is going to be just like interpersonally important is it's so easy. I heard a lot of people, you know, in in response to people stressing about Roe v. Wade, oh, well, you know, it's either it's not going to happen or why are you, why are you being so anxious? It doesn't, doesn't direct you, uh, directly impact Mm -hmm. you. And I think like, you know, really validating the anxiety that a lot of people are, are feeling, you know, to your point, not just women, but people, other marginalized yeah. um, communities who are saying, okay, what's going to roll back next, right? If this thing that we thought, you know, 10 years ago was unthinkable, mm-hmm. what other restrictions can be put into place. And when that's what's front and center on your mind, it's, it, I think we have to acknowledge, you know, there are a lot of women sitting at their desks today, having a very hard time concentrating on the work in front of them, you know, realizing, oh, like this, there's a good portion of our country who doesn't want me to be able to have autonomy over my body. That's right. Um, And that is a really scary thing. Yeah, it's frightening. It really is. And I'm, I'm far beyond childbearing ages. And, you know, as I was sitting there listening to it, and I was crying, and my husband came, he's like, why are you so upset? And I was like, this could impact our granddaughter, like, she won't have the same rights that that I had. And I said, and then I think about friends and family and, and other women I know who are of childbearing age, and I know many. And I said, and, and, and I just fear what the ultimate end result will be here, you know? And my husband says, well, you know, you got to think about voting rights. And I said, you got to think about education. You got to think about interracial marriage. You got to think about same-sex marriage, like all of those things, you know, that, I mean, Justice Thomas pretty much said it like, oh, we're going to look at these next three now, because if this is not legal, then neither are these. And I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. We're going back in time. I don't know if you're saying a handmaid's tale, but if you've never watched it before, I have. We're heading, we're heading in that direction very, very quickly. <laughs> I mean, it, it it is one of those things where I think that there is a level of complacency that always exists in mm-hmm. us as humans, and some of that is a survival mechanism to say, "Oh, well, it'll never get that bad," mm-hmm. right? And I think it's like at what point do you wake up and say, oh yeah, like it can get better. That's right. And if we don't, you know, take action, if we don't, um, you know, stand up in the ways that we can stand up, it's like, it's a slippery slope. Very slippery. Yeah. Be looking, we're going to look up one day and be like, oh, 
all these things that we thought could never happen or would never come to fruition have. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, Kelly, I want you to tell everyone how they can find you. Thank you so, so much for being my guest, especially on such a pivotal day uh, in history. Um, But thank you so much for spending time with me on Stop Being a Best Kept Secret. But please let everyone know how they can reach you because I have a feeling you're going to get some emails and (laughs) some hits on your website. Well, thank you so much again for having me. Um, I feel super grateful to be in conversation with you. And if folks want to follow me or get in touch, um, our website for collective is hello-collective.com. And you can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Collective DEI. Um, And you can also uh, find me as Kelly M. Wagner on Twitter, um, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Perfect. I'm following you now. So (laughs) we'll be connected beyond LinkedIn from now on. Um, But thank you again for being a guest on Stop Being a Best Kept Secret. Everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Tana M. Session. And thank you for listening.